Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, mantenganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. And yeah, I know I've been a little light on podcasts for the last little while. I think I'm spreading myself too thin on a couple of things and didn't have time to spend time focused on a podcast. But I'd like to change that again and try to get back in the rhythm of creating regular podcasts. And this is the fun time, right, where I'm talking about something that I enjoy and I'm passionate about. So it's really fun to be able to spend time and talk about Disney, and I enjoy sharing that with you all. Now, before I get to today's podcast, I wanted to share a little something fun with you. At work, they had a uh, tri- they have a Trivia Tuesday every once a month, and this Trivia Tuesday happened to be about Pixar movies. And I was like, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll take my shot at this one. I, I go to all of them just because it's fun. Sometimes I know nothing about it, like... Last month's was Breaking Bad. I've never actually seen the show. I've only seen previews for it. I've never actually watched it, so I did miserably. But here's one about Pixar, and I'm like, gee, I wonder how many I'm going to get right. They had 30 questions. I wound up getting 28 correct. I mean, I knew more than I thought I knew. Uh, I've seen every movie multiple times, so I don't think there was any issues with me getting into the, the spirit of things and actually rocking the question and answer session because I really do know all the movies. It was a lot of fun to sit there and do it and kind of taunt everyone else because I knew all the answers. Uh, actually, the two I got wrong, this is kind of funny, were the name of the ball uh, that you see in all the uh, Pixar shorts. It's a um, blue, red, and yellow ball with a star on it. And it's actually called Luxo's Ball. And I couldn't remember what it was called. I thought it was called Andy's Ball, but I couldn't remember. But it's the Luxo Ball. And the other one was, um, the there was a short that was about an Indian family that talked about uh, the histor- history of the family. And I actually, I don't remember ever seeing that one, so I didn't know the name of it. Uh, it's Sanjay's, uh, Sanjay's Adventure or something like that. But I didn't know the answer to that one, which was kind of funny because I didn't realize that I hadn't seen one of the shorts. I'll have to go back and see if I can find that one. Anyway, that was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, as expected, I wound up winning, you know, getting 28 of 30 correct. And uh, I think next next best was like 19 or something. So it was way ahead of the curve. Um, but, you know, that's what you get when you take on me <laughs> talking about something Disney related. Anyway. So what I wanted to get to today and what I wanted to talk about in my podcast today was actually talking about my series Lost and Found in Walt Disney World. And I think one thing that I've I found as I was kind of developing this series and getting it started. So I don't think anybody really does justice to the story of how Walt Disney World came to be between the land usage, between the acquisition, between Walt Disney's plans for the future and so forth. No one's really I don't think I haven't heard it as a as a complete story now. When I did, when I started doing the Lost and Found in Walt Disney World, I started thinking about how to bring this together, and I'm talking about it in different locations. But I wanted to try and bring that story together and tell you about it on a podcast as well, at least the early part of it, because I think it's kind of fascinating. So, in 1955, Walt Disney opened Disneyland, and he always knew he could do better and do more. 
And he had all these different plans and ambitions to do different things. So he was working on the uh, Mineral King Ski Resort up in uh, Northern California. He was working with the city of St. Louis on uh, redevelopment of their downtown district. He was working with other partners. He had been asked to help with uh, Expo 67 for Montreal. He had many other projects he was working on. Some came to fruition, some didn't. Some he stayed more in the background and just consulted on them. And the historical footnotes more than anything. And then when there was the 1963 World's Fair, I think he saw the value in actually developing something broader and deeper than he had. And that's where the experimental prototype City of Tomorrow or Community of Tomorrow came up and he started thinking about how he could build something on that scale. Now, you don't want to recreate what Disneyland was. That was never the intent. That was never the intended purpose. It was to grow on that idea and use his imagination to create something more. So as he was talking to different groups and things that he was trying to do, he was trying to find a space where he could actually create something that would be this experimental prototype city. And so he had all these different places and locations that he was exploring. He was flying around the country doing different business. So he'd fly to New York and he'd do something. He'd fly to Florida. He had some work he was doing in Miami. I don't know what the work was he was doing in Miami, but he was doing something in Miami. And he realized that Florida was a great location to create a second sort of theme park or a second sort of area that he could have. And the reason for it was because of the abundance of land, the expense of the land, the newly formed roadways that were coming into the land, and perhaps, and I use a little asterisk here, the willingness of the government of Florida to kind of uh, be given to him. Yeah, his, his, personal style and the things he was bringing to the table and his own iconic nature, I think, made that a lot easier for people to digest. And I think it was easier to kind of sell the state of Florida on a lot of things just because he had this he had this charisma. So all of that together, he had this idea he wanted to come here. So the story goes that he was flying along and he was uh, coming back from a meeting in Miami and he was flying over the central Florida part of the state. And he saw some land down there he was really interested in. But the broader context was he had already thought about four potential areas in the state. He was thinking about somewhere down by West Palm Beach, which was still undeveloped at that point. But the problem was it was pretty far down in the state and it wasn't going to work out too well. He had Daytona Beach in mind, which would be a great location, except for the fact that there's great beaches there already and you can't expand further east. You could only go north, south and west. So you were only you were limited to three three dimensional space instead of four and you couldn't compete with the beaches. You didn't want to. So that was kind of a non-starter for him. He thought about the Tampa area, but land was already starting to get a little expensive out that way. And again, it was a little farther off the beaten path and he wasn't sure it was going to work out with the development he wanted to do. And so the fourth area was in the Ocala-ish area. That's a little bit north of Orlando. And it was a convenient location because his mother had actually moved to a little town called Paisley, which is a little bit north of there, maybe 45 minutes north of there. So in the sense of him wanting to uh, capture his own history and kind of be near where his parents were, sort of like rekindling the spirit of Marceline, Missouri, when he was building the, the uh, original Disneyland, he had that idea that it might work out that he could have this uh, place near where his mother was. Now, as it turns out, Ocala wasn't quite the right location, so he went a little bit further south into Orlando and uh, thought that that might actually work because he was flying over it one day, the story goes. He saw it and he was like, wow, this is really great. I think I'd like to get some land there. By the way, I didn't mention there was one other factor about wanting to uh, have his location in Florida, and that was the good weather. 
So the good weather, you could have year-round entertainment. You could always be outside. Much like in California, in Southern California, the weather would always be nice. Not too cold, not too rainy most of the year. It would work out pretty well. So he wanted to get some land. The question was, how do you get that land? So he put uh, president of the company, Don Tatum, and uh, one of his attorneys, Bob Foster, on the project. And their job was to try and acquire some land in the central Florida area. And their job was to get between 10 and 12,000 acres. So they set about this business and Bob Foster had a comment. He was sent to the hinterlands to acquire some land and he didn't know how to start. So he gets down there and he starts investigating and looking around. What he found was something interesting. There were two brothers called the Dimitri brothers who lived in the northern part of what became the Walt Disney World property. They had built, they had purchased the land there in the 1950s as speculators. And what they thought was that they could actually use that land and create like a hunting lodge and bring people out to the swamp land and actually do some hunting and, you know, get people engaged and maybe build up a community there where they could get something going. The problem was the state of Florida, unbeknownst to them, had sold the mining rights to everything in the central part of the state to Tufts University. Tufts University could come in at any time and they could uh, take anything off the top of the land in order to get to the mining rights. So they could get to the minerals, the natural gas, anything else they might think is under the surface of the land. Now, as it turns out, there's not much under the surface, but nobody knew that in the 1950s and the early 1960s. So the Dimitris were kind of stuck. They didn't know what to do. They had bought this land and they really couldn't build on it because they were afraid Tufts was going to come in and take over the land. The state was no help and they really didn't have the resources to take on the state. So they wanted to get out from under the land that they owned. So Bob Foster came in and through a series of agreements, he managed to make a purchase of about 10,000 acres from them. So they, uh, they sold off the land and this was done through the, the Reedy Creek Development Company. And the deal was after they had made this purchase of land, Walt Disney came to central Florida and visited with the Dimitris. And he talked to them a little bit about what was going on and what he was planning and this and that and the other thing. And they agreed to keep his secret in exchange for him purchasing the land and a nice profit for them. It wasn't a great profit, but it was a nice profit. And they were very happy to sell it and they were, they were going to walk away wealthier. The problem for Disney was twofold. One, he needed to set up his financing in a way so that no one would know that it was Walt Disney purchasing the land. He wanted to keep that a secret until he was ready to let the cat out of the bag. He started thinking maybe he needed more than 10,000 acres. And the second problem was he's going to need to get the mining rights back from Tufts University in order to be able to build on the land and not have to worry about later somebody coming in and taking over the land and, and going for the mining rights. So this is where Walt Disney got clever, and he hired a guy named Paul Hallowell. Paul was a CIA operative who had uh, done a number of clandestine operations for the U.S. government, primarily in the financial services business, where he was setting up shell companies and doing some other things to help move money around to during the uh, part of the Cold War. And uh, so he was the right guy to help out with this particular piece of history. So he set up some shell companies. That's where the Reedy Creek came from. That's where the money flowed through and so forth to be able to pay for the land. So he was able to get that done. The other thing that Paul did was to work with Tufts University. Paul came in as a consultant who was trying to help these poor brothers to be able to get the land and have the mining rights to it. He arranged a meeting between the Dimitris and Tufts University to sit down and talk about purchasing the mining rights. Now Tufts really had no intention of using the mining rights, but they might have sold it to someone else who might have wanted to use it. 
So he said he set about doing this, and there was some risk associated with it. But he managed to get the mining rights together, and for the sum of about fifteen thousand dollars, sold the mining rights back to the Dimitris, who then turned it over to Disney when they actually made the purchase. So kind of a clever way around it. But there's a little clandestine information, a little work that had to happen here behind the scenes to make it happen because it was an impossible thing. And it, again, keeping it secret. Didn't want anybody to know who was who, that Disney was involved in this because the problem was they were, you know, Disney was buying this land from the Dimitris at around $100 an acre. And if he tried to, if somebody found out it was Disney, it was probably going to go to $1,000 or $5,000 or even more. So that was kind of a problem. The other part of the land, the biggest other purchase that he had, was a land, uh, land purchase from a man named Erlo Bronson. Erlo was a state senator. Erlo was big in the Osceola County area. He and his family owned a large number of acres of land. Uh, you know, I don't know what the number of acres was. It was a very large number of acres. But Disney approached him, actually Bob Foster approached him, about selling some of the land to the Latin American Development Corporation, which kind of goes along with Walt's business in Florida. In the first place, he was doing something in Latin America. So the Latin American Development Corporation, again, using Hellowell's shell company set up, was able to purchase the land from Erlo Bronson. Now, Erlo had no idea it was Disney. In his case, they didn't let the cat out of the bag, and it was another 10,000 acres or so. If you look at the map of Walt Disney World and the uh, land purchases, the two largest purchases were those two. There was the uh, northern part, which was the Dimitri brothers, and that's, that was the part that, that was in Orange County. And the other part was from Erlo Bronson, and that was in the southern part uh, in Osceola County. And those two plots of land were made up the bulk of Disney. Now, Tatum and uh, Foster went around and they actually purchased other land around the area to kind of uh, net out to about the 43 square miles for, you know, somewhere in that neighborhood where they were actually purchasing the rest of the land. And it was sm much smaller purchases that kind of filled in the rest. So this went on for a while. Now there's a, there's additional stories. There's, you know, things that happened along the way. Uh, you know, there was the, uh, the story of Walt Disney flying back to uh, Disneyland and they actually were fueling in New Orleans and it happened to be they landed the day that JFK was shot. And so that would have been 1963. And he had just met the Dimitris that day. So there's a little story, you know, connection there. And uh, it's kind of interesting how that all works. Now, Walt had explored the land a little bit. So there are stories about Walt having landed at the Walt Disney Airfield that's over on the side near the Contemporary Resort. But I can tell you, he, I, it, in all honesty, he probably never landed there because that airstrip was not built until after Walt's death. However, in the land they purchased from Merlo Bronson, a little bit further southwest of there, there was an airstrip. It had some funny name like the Erlo Orlando or Orlando or something airfield. And it was just a uh, grass strip, but it was perfect for like landing Walt's plane near his property and then he could be taken around to see different things. So in all likelihood, he did land there. Now, he also went off and he visited... There was one gas station that was in town. It was the only place in town, Jock's Happy Corner. He did visit there at some point. He met the owners. He talked to them a little bit and, again, asked to keep his secret that he was in town. And it was an unusual place for him to go. It's in the spit of, spit of land in the middle of nowhere. Why would he be there? But he you know, tried to explain, his, explain it away and make it happen. Anyway, so the story goes on a little bit further that you know, more land was being purchased. And it did seem strange, like there was a large amount of land being purchased in Central Florida, and no one knew who was purchasing it. You know, was it 
you know, one of the uh, wealthy industrialists that was going to plan to build something there. Maybe they're going to build a factory. Was it the uh, aerospace industry doing something, you know, as they were starting to plan for the Apollo program? Because it's only, you know, an hour and change up to the uh, Space Center. Was it someone else who had something in mind? And no one knew. A lot of speculation reigned around there. Now, as it happens, in 1965, an Orlando Sentinel reporter, an entertainment reporter by the name of Emily Baver, was in uh, the uh, Disneyland Resort, and she was celebra- they were celebrating the 10th anniversary of Disneyland. And she was invited as an entertainment reporter to come and meet with Walt Disney and ask questions and whatever, and be part of the fanfare. And she had a hunch that it was actually Walt Disney making the purchase because, you know, the speculation, he was on the list of speculation, right? He was one of the people that people thought maybe he was building that because he was the icon and he was doing all this other stuff and he was planning for things and he was kind of working his way east and perhaps this would be a good location for him. Sure enough, there's a lot of land there that would certainly make a lot of sense. So she asked him outright when she was in his office, Walt, are you the guy that's building, that's buying all this land in Central Florida? And according to the story, he flushed a little bit. And he said, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And she knew that was him. So she did a little more research and determined it was him. And uh, a few weeks later, they published the the findings that we say mystery buyer is Disney. So within a month, in November of 1965, Walt Disney came to Florida to let the cat out of the bag. He came and met with the governor of Florida. This was part of the strategic move of starting to grease the wheels a little bit to make Florida uh, easily accessible to him. He actually came to Florida and they went over to the the Cherry Plaza Hotel over by Lake Eola in downtown Orlando. And they went in there and there's the great picture of uh, Florida welcomes Walt Disney with the governor, Roy and Walt there. And they're introduce Walt Disney as the buyer. Now, Walt, for his part, is still being a little cagey at this point. He doesn't give all the details of what he plans to do. I don't know that he actually knew what he planned to do, but he also didn't want to find himself in a position like he did in St. Louis. The story with St. Louis was... He was going to redevelop the downtown area and help design all of that. And that was going to be his next big thing, to actually get into some more of the urban planning and build a family-friendly downtown area. When Anheuser-Busch, which was huge in the St. Louis area, confronted him and said, hey, what about alcohol sales here? He said, I don't want alcohol sales. I want this to be family-friendly. And the CEO at the time, whichever of the Bushes it was, said something to the effect of, yeah, well, how are pe- I don't see how people are going to come here if there's not alcohol. And Walt was offended. So Walt pulled out of that deal and never went through with St. Louis. So in finding that relationship to be strained, he was being very careful in Florida with what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. So he created all these, um, he had all these companies, he consolidated them down into uh, one company and then put them under the Walt Disney umbrella and then actually uh, got permission from the state of Florida through the judicial courts, uh, the judicial system, to actually uh, create a, um, a, dr- a special drainage district. And that's a special classification that allows him some land use rights and some things that otherwise wouldn't have been afforded to him. So he was able to get that and kind of turn things to, in his direction. So it was sort of going his way to a large degree. Now, the following year, Walt Disney died. Uh, so, you know, things, while things were progressing, it was never really clear how this was going to work out. But this is where Roy and some of the other people in the company decided they needed to take a little more action. The fear was that the state of Florida was going to try and dictate everything they did. You had the governor who was, uh, who was 
go up for re-election. You had a new governor who was uh, trying to take, you know, come out, come in as the governor, and so there was a little contention among them and between them. So Roy and even Walt, before his death, were trying to use that to their advantage to try and get the maximum out of each of them, contribute to political campaigns, whatever else, whatever things they needed to do. So by the time the election happened, and the new there was a new governor coming into play in uh, 1966. It uh, seemed like, you know, this was the time for Roy to strike. Walt was, you know, Walt died in December, so a month after that election. And Roy decided it was time to meet with the new governor, other state legislators, other people in the state. He brought in people from Allied Steel. He brought in people from other big companies. And they made a pitch to the state of Florida. And where they did that was up in Winter, um, was up in Winter Park. There used to be a movie theater there. It's now in L.A. Fitness. And they went into this theater and they presented Walt's film where he talks about his view of Epcot. It was the film that you see that he made before he died, where he talks about his view of Epcot and what he's planning. And then there's the, um, the narration voice that tells you all about the details of Epcot. And then Roy made his pitch. We should be classified as a not only a special drainage district, but a special classification under the law of a special improvement district. And what that would allow them is complete autonomy over their land. They could, they could regulate water use, land use, emergency services. They could build a hospital. They could build power plants. They could do anything they wanted, but they were still subject to certain state regulations and certain federal regulations. Very specific things, though, not everything. And so they were able to convince the state to do that. And the state said, yes, we'll do that. And they actually created two different cities, um, the uh, Reedy Creek Improvement District and Bay Lake. And those two cities then came together and they actually formed their own uh, ownership committees and they put people on boards and so forth. They actually had people that worked for the Walt Disney Company that lived there and now were part of the community and could actually do the voting membership and so forth. Very complicated technical legal stuff they had to do there. But they were able to build this community and they were able to get the land use rights that they wanted and then be able to build pretty much anything they wanted. They could be unfettered and don't have to worry about state or federal oversight into a lot of it. Now, very specific things, yes, but interesting how they were able to kind of help manipulate the state and do this. And, you know, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, I think in the long run, it turned out to be good, but it was kind of an odd mix of things that they did to try and get there. And I just find the whole story kind of fascinating. And I don't know that anybody really knows all the details. I mean, I know many of the details from having researched it pretty thoroughly. I don't know all the details either. Um, you know, there's certain pieces that are missing to me that I, you know, I kind of look at and I go, I'm not sure quite how they did that. But in general, that's the way the story worked. And that's where they got most of their land. And that's how they got it all together. And it turns out that, you know, as they were finishing up the purchase of the land, once Walt Disney was identified as the buyer, it became a very expensive proposition. The prices of the land did go up to well over $1,000 for an acre. It was a very expensive thing to get to continue to buy land there. Now, over the years, they've been able to buy some land. They've mitigated some. They've sold some off. They've done some other things. But this is all part of the swap and trade to make things happen. But now you see that the, the area growing around it. After only almost 50 years, you're starting to see some growth in the immediate areas right around it where there used to be orange groves and other things. People finally sold off their land, and now you're starting to see housing communities and hotels and other things spring up very close to the property. So it's an interesting little prospect, and it, it, I find the whole story kind of fascinating. Walt had a plan. 
Whether his plan would have come to fruition, whether he would have been able to do all the things he wanted to do, I'm not really sure. It's hard to say what, how it would have worked out for him had he managed to live on for longer. I think it worked out pretty well in the grand scheme of things, but you know, just getting it open was, was kind of the hard thing. I think the nature of it was that they had a plan for an experimental prototype city. And this city was going to be a place where he could bring together bright minds and do some of the research and development and have his Imagineers working with people and be able to test things out in the theme park and other places. And his Magic Kingdom, which is on the northern edge of the property, up in where the Dimitris had their, had their land, that actually plays into the fact that that was supposed to be a way. It was a moneymaker for them to be able to get people to come through the experimental prototype city to be able to see the Magic Kingdom and actually have something that was similar. You know, it's a way to make money based on having people flow through the, uh, the property. So kind of interesting. And that's why the Transportation and Ticket Center is so far away and you have to take the monorail around because it kind of goes with the original plan. Didn't quite work out the way they wanted it to, but in general, that was kind of the, the plan and that's why it looks that way. Um, so it's kind of interesting. You know, had it worked out for Walt Disney might've been interesting to see where it all went and what, what kinds of things might've happened. But I find the story just fascinating. There's so many little details there and there's so many players involved and you know, these shell companies and the things he did, it was very clever, very innovative. At that point in time, not many people had thought of doing things like that. Um, I think now you can make the case that people do a lot of that. They've created shell companies and they do other things. I mean, you look at, look at any sports team that you, that you follow and you'll find that the sports team is not just an owner owning the sports team in general. It's the owner owning a bunch of companies that subdivide up to stadium operations, the sports team, the management company, blah, blah, blah. And each one of those has a different organization and a different tax structure and you know which ones make money. And that's how sports teams are able to say, hey, I make and lose money on my sports team, even though you know they're always making money because that's the nature of the sport. If they weren't making money, the business would close. So that kind of goes along with the, you know, the philosophy there. This is something that, you know, I, I would argue that Walt started this sort of process and other people kind of copied it in other industries. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it certainly seems that way to me. Anyway, so that's the story of Walt Disney and how it comes together. If you'd like to check out my video series that goes along with this, and I tell the same basic story, just in a slightly different way, because I'm showing you some of the locations and you can see some of the fun pictures and images and so forth. It's, uh, it's fun to look at and it's fun to take in and kind of enjoy because it's a, an interesting story. So it's over at, uh, on YouTube. It's uh, Lost and Found Disney. I'll put a link to it in my show notes page. Uh, but feel free to check it out and see what you think. Well, that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's kind of a look back into the uh, history of Walt Disney World and something that stories that you may not know. So remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. 
There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 